did go to this Minneapolis for a couple of days, but had a chance to reconnect with Deanna's mom. That's our one um, parent that's left, and we had a good time being able to uh, connect with her since it had been quite a while that we had been able to do that. So we've been working through a, a series on the family. And as Phil talked about last week, this idea as he looked at those passages of, of, of children coming to faith, but we want to go down another issue today. And, and again, this is centered around one of the issue, or one of the words that are painted in our foyer. It's the word of believing. And even as I was thinking ahead to Easter and Monday Thursday, this idea of believing is very significant. I don't think we realize even back then, when as we look even at the Easter week, how important believing really is all about. Uh, Palm Sunday, this is, we recognize this as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into a, a city. And, and, and let me read the, the text there from John chapter 12. Uh, John chapter 12 kind of starts the timeline of this holy week, this week uh, leading up to the resurrection. But let me begin by verse 12. John 12, 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this Sunday, that week before the resurrection, people are laying out palm leaves and, and him, Jesus walking over them or through that as he's on a donkey and coming into the city. And so many people, they knew about this guy. And many people believed, and the beliefs were kind of all over the place. And some of them believed, for example, that he was going to be the king that was going to overthrow the Roman government. And others are probably wondering, is this the guy? Is this, and maybe even a spiritual perspective, is this the Messiah? But there was people that were interested in Jesus. And another text here, let me jump a little bit later in, in the passage out of John 12. In verse 20, let me put that on the screen. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Weren't Jews, were Greeks here. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. There was people that wanted to connect with this guy, wondering who he was. And a little bit later, he responds again through some kind of some final teachings, public teachings. And, and let me pick it up in verse 20, uh, 35. So Jesus said to them, now, he's speaking to a larger group here. It's not just those guys. And this probably would have been on Tuesday, by the way, of that week. So there's kind of a jump of a couple days. But Tuesday, he says this, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, look at this, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Believing was important. In verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. It's, it's saying, he's saying, if you believe me, you believe God. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Understand, believing or unbelief, has eternal consequences. 
But when we jump ahead to Thursday, in the upper room even, a couple days even beyond this text, believing is an issue here as well. Matter of fact, he's eating a meal with his disciples, that last supper that we celebrate on Thursday night, and he offered these words in his final teaching, if you want to say, to his disciples. John 14, look at how it says, writes this. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. And so he's speaking to the disciples, the 12 here, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I may, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, and it's interesting here, he responds to the disciples, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Profound words. He's speaking to the disciples. This wasn't those words of I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's speaking to the twelve. See, he's telling these men who've been following him for three years I'm the way, I'm the truth. Guys, believe this, believe in me. Now, now here's what, how we're going to connect this with the family. And let me put the, a statement on the screen for you. Too often, we do not live in this reality as a family. That Jesus is the truth and the way, and that he is the path to a profoundly satisfying life for a family. See, too often as families, we don't demonstrate at times a real belief in what Jesus says to us. We say that we know the truth, and we even claim to follow Jesus, but at times I think our lives don't match up into that belief that he's talking about. You think of when hard times come. Do we put our hope, do we really believe in Jesus and put our hope in him? Do we put our joy, is our satisfaction, and the meaning in life, is it about Jesus, or is it other things that we demonstrate? And here's the other reality. Like never before, families are struggling. They're struggling deeply to become truth-centered families, especially within the churches of today. The truth of Christ is not becoming central it's not growing. A study in 2009 by the guy by the name of George Barna, some of you know that name, he, takes, he does research and statistical work. And he came up with a phrase, actually maybe it was Chuck Colson who coined it. This phrase is called a biblical worldview. And he sought, went out to look and see how many in the United States actually espouse a biblical worldview. And here's, here's what he said it is. Number one, believing that absolute moral truth exists. That there's truth apart from ourselves. That God is the one that determines what's true. Number two, that the Bible is totally accurate in all its principles as teaches. That this re- is real. It's authoritative. Number three, that Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic. So the essence of that, I kind of stutter pounding a little bit here. 
the, the essence of that, Satan's not just an illusion, he's real. And that he exists in this world. Number four, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or to do good works. And number five, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And number six, God is all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe of today. Those are the six things that he described as a biblical worldview. But let me show you some of the results of his work and what it revealed. The first one, 9% of all American adults have a biblical worldview. 9%. But the next one, those who call themselves born again. And I understand there's a group of people who understand John 3 that says we need to be born again. But look at there. They're only twice as likely as the average adult to possess a biblical worldview. What it meant, that even among born-again Christians, less than one out of every five has such an outlook on life. They claim to be followers of Jesus. The next one, one-third of adults, 34%, believe that moral truth is absolute and unaffected by circumstances. Next, slightly less than a half of all born-again adults believe in absolute moral truth. And you go, do you wonder why the world is going the way it's going? And you go, no wonder. Next one, just one-fourth of adults, 27%, are convinced that Satan is a real force. For born-again adults, 40% believe that he's real. And you go, okay. 75% of the people out there say that Satan is just a made-up thing. doesn't really exist. 40% of adults believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life while he was on earth. Born again? Two-thirds of born again believes that Jesus was sinless. Did you catch that? Now let me give you the one that was probably most staggering for me that he came up with in this study. This is 2009. The current study found that one half of 1% of adults in the Mosaic generation, those from 18 to 23 at the time of adults, have a biblical worldview. One half of 1%. And matter of fact, in the study there, it pointed out as they researched it more, is that a worldview is firmly, primarily and firmly in place by the time that child is age 13. 13. Already it's solidified whether they believe these moral truths that, that, they haven't, that, we, that we pointed out. And then he went on to say that it's just solidified at that point. It's kind of entrenched into their lives as teenagers, and then they begin to teach it to their children after they grow up. Here's some conclusions from Barna. There are several troubling patterns to take notice. You kind of go, duh. Um, First, though, although most Americans consider themselves to be Christian, they say they know the content of the Bible. Less than one out of ten Americans demonstrate such knowledge through their actions. 
Second, the generational pattern suggests that parents are not focused on guiding their children to have a biblical worldview. One of the challenges for parents, though, is that you cannot give what you do not have. And most parents do not possess such a perspective on life. And that raises a third challenge relates to the job that Christian school, churches, schools, and parachurch ministries are doing in Christian education. Finally, even though a central element of being a Christian is to embrace basic biblical principles and incorporate them into one's worldview, there has been no change in the percentage of adults or even born-again adults in the past 13 years regarding the possession of a biblical worldview. It was 13 years earlier that he did the same study. And you go, okay. See, within the family... In this area of truth and belief in Scripture, something isn't working, folks. We aren't gaining ground on young people today. And frankly, if moms and dads are growing up and they don't believe a worldview, there's going to be little chance, a biblical worldview, there's going to be little chance that our children are going to be truth-centered, that they will believe Jesus. That's the tension I think we live with. And the hard part, the scripture, this is the reality. The scripture doesn't give us how-tos as to how to change those numbers. There's no first and second books of parenting. I wish there was. But there's this reality then as families, we we must begin to understand in a greater way the nature of training and disciple-making in terms of our children, to make disciples with our children. For your notes, though, I think the dilemma for us, if you're taking notes in the bulletin, the discipling dilemma, our children can listen to the truth. They can learn it, understand it. You can memorize scripture and not yet embrace the truth or embrace Jesus. See, we can't guarantee that our children are going to believe that he will become the truth of their own lives. But today, when you ask the question, then what can we do? If we can't control it, what is our part? And the key point here for today is this. We can create a family culture that provides good soil for our children to embrace the truth, to believe in Jesus, and to follow Jesus and believe him. But it starts with questions like this. What does it mean to be a truth-centered family? What does it mean to be a family that believes the truth? What does it mean about what is this idea of rich soil where children can embrace Jesus and learn to embrace those biblical values that they so desperately need? But to begin today, when you talk about this soil of the family again, I want to go back to a verse and, that, and, and widen that. It comes out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 4. And guys, you've already read this and you go, uh-oh. It's a verse that for we that are dads, we really don't like. This is a challenging verse for us that we need to begin here this morning. 6-4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, I'm going to set aside the first couple of the first phrase. I'm going to focus on the second part of the verse first. Bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That phrase, bring them up, 
is really a single word in, in the Greek. And it's the word really is the word nourishment. It's about creating an environment of nourishment within the families. And, and by the way, this is directed at dad, but, but moms also partner in this as well. But that word nourishment there, or bring them up, the same word there is used in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, a chapter earlier. Look at, I'll put that on the screen. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but look at it, but nourishes it. Bring them up and nourishes it, the same word. And he cherishes it just as Christ does the church. But it speaks to this, a father Mom, are to create a culture of care and of spiritual nourishment with children. And too often, I think here's the struggle that we have, is that when we say, who's responsible for this? Plan A is what? Here's what it usually defaults to. The church doing it. Sunday school class. Awana. Youth group. Folks, the scriptures never present church as plan A. And I think the default setting is plan B becomes moms do it and not dads. And oftentimes dads are plan C. And all of those are supposed to be flipped over. Dads, really, we got to take a greater role in the issue of creating spiritual nourishment for our children. How are we doing at that? But it calls, in one sense, for us that are dads to take greater responsibility for the spiritual impact in our children's lives. The welfare of our children. We're responsible for talking to our children about our faith. And yes, it's in partnership with mom. But it's supposed to be, that's plan A, and, and not C. But we come to these next words, that where we nourish them, create an environment, and then look at what it says, discipline of the Lord. Now we hear that word immediately, and, and we go to places like this. Okay, consequences, boundaries, structures that need to be in place in our families. And they're all critical, it really is. But let me put up a couple more verses that really widen this idea of discipline. Now this word is used six times in the New Testament. And the next time it's being used is actually 2 Timothy 3.16. Look at this. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for now discipline there. The scholars have used the word training instead of discipline. So as they look at it, this word is wider. It's training in righteousness. That's the same word there. But let me show you and widen it even in the context of discipline in Hebrews 12, where the next four times or the rest of the time in the Bible, this word is used. Looking in Hebrews 12, it is for discipline, same word there as, as Ephesians 6, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, the word discipline 
is connected here in the times where God looks at us and says this. If it if it's directed at Ken, it's it's saying God God is saying Ken, I'm going to discipline you, but it's for a purpose to move you spiritually. That's what He's wanting to do in our lives. And so when you think of fathers and mothers with discipline, it's about accountability, yes. About their actions, the answer is yes. It's about boundaries and structures, yes. But the goal is spiritual movement. And that's what I think we forget as parents at times. We think of it's discipline for discipline's sake. No, it's for spiritual movement in the lives of, of, of our children. Just a side note there. As I pondered Hebrews 12, we as a parent, we all go, yeah, families need discipline today. But we don't necessarily apply that to the adult world when God says, I'm going to discipline adults. We kind of cringe with the idea that God can actually come into our lives and discipline us. Now it's for a purpose to move us spiritually. But understand, so it's nourishment and discipline. You combine them together. But, but I, here's where I've got to push you farther because the entire context of Hebrews 12 gives a wider understanding of this. And it applies to Ephesians 6.4. Look at uh, Hebrews 12, the context of God disciplining us. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. And look at this phrase, for the Lord disciplines, look at, the one He loves. Dads, moms, your children will not accept your discipline. Nor will your son and daughter hear the words of truth that you speak. Nor will they believe the things that you are trying to teach if they don't know and believe with certainty that they are loved by you. See, God loves us. That's the environment. But if our children don't understand that the parents love them, discipline will not work. And as children grow up, they're sensing, they're, they're reading, they're deciding, they're evaluating, and then they're doing this. Does mom and dad really love me? And they're doing it almost on an unconscious level. Is mom and dad for me? Do they really care about me? And if they don't sense these things, our children will not give us respect. And we've got to be so careful because without even knowing it, we can be creating an environment where truth and believing will not happen. Because they don't understand it's the context of a love relationship. And all the God talk that we spit out, they won't embrace it. And it will not be embedded into their hearts. And, and dads, I've got to speak again to you directly because we are key in developing the soil of our family. And when it comes to your children, hearing your words about what you believe, what you think about God, it will fall on deaf ears if they doubt your unconditionally, unconditional love for them. And this is more prevalent for, for dads in the dad area. Most kids understand mom loves them. But where they doubt so often is with fathers. 
See, discipline, rules, boundaries, they flourish in an environment of love. But here's the the other tension that I see out there. Too often, parents, knowing that they want to love their kids, they revert to a certain style of parenting. And to say it more directly, it's this. They want to become the children's best friends. And you go, if you're a parent, that's not the goal. When you have young kids, the goal is not for them to be your best friend. Matter of fact, I I think this is the way it needs to go. They need to be seeing us and seeing who is our best friend. And the question is, is it Jesus? Do they see in us that we're becoming a deeper lover of Jesus? Are they seeing that in us? And the Holy Spirit works us when we do that, and it gives us the power to love our children more profoundly. So make it our goal, maybe. The goal would be, don't worry about being your children's best friend. Love Jesus and let them see that. But I need to back up to that first phrase here. Because it's a critical phrase that I bypassed right away. 6-4, look at what it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now here's again where I think we need to widen our understanding of this because oftentimes when we look at this, don't provoke our children to anger, we we think of it in terms of isolated conversations with our children. Okay, I'm not going to provoke my child today. I'm going to use words. I understand it really is about the soil, the culture of our family that even this speaks to a wider context. It is more than just the individual conversations with our kids. See, the question is, is our family culture hard ground, rocky ground, or is it rich, fertile soil? Well, they will believe and embrace the truth. Now, understand, this is a negative command. We acknowledge that. And he could have said lots of different commands, but let me widen it by going to another text that really parallels this as well from Colossians 3. Look at the way it it states it here. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, if you have the New American, it actually uses the word exasperate. What it literally means, provoke or exasperate, is this. It's stirring. It's a constant stirring thing that's going on. It's creating that culture where where parents are stirring something within the child's heart. And ultimately, in this text, it says what? It's not anger, it's discouragement. But let me connect anger and discouragement and why that provoking, creating that, moving away from that kind of environment is so critical. I'll put it on the screen here. You don't have it for your notes, but really the function, the culture of provoking. Anger is acting outward. So when children explode, when the expressions of anger, understand that's the outward expression. In Colossians, that discouragement is when kids turn in. It's acting in. And all the stats today says this, that depression is becoming, growing at an exponential rate in the children's worlds of today. They're becoming more and more discouraged inside. What is the soil of our family? And here's where I want to end today. 
I want to talk about the soil of a type of soil where it actually creates more rocky ground and hard ground. And it adds fuel. If you want to put it, it adds fuel to our children dismissing Jesus, dismissing what we believe and what we want them to believe. So the first one, number one, I said it this way, family culture that works against believing. Number one, finding fault becomes the dominant method to spur desired change in your children. A child who's never complimented by their parents, I guarantee it's going to be trouble. If your children are always told what's wrong and never what's right, they're going to lose hope. And they'll become discouraged. They're going to give up. See, a child needs that care, those words of encouragement, every every bit as much as they need correction. You know, I have to first admit with my, uh, my personality is kind of a half-glass empty personality. And I, I think back and go, oh, I wish I could have done some things different because I felt like maybe this was my pattern at times. Number two, inconsistent with the way you discipline or the boundaries that you set. It becomes different, for example, between one child or another child. It changes. They never know the rules, the structures of the game. Number three, disciplining them in front of others so that they become embarrassed. This loss of dignity. How do we do that? How do we treat them with respect even as a child? Where they don't act in. And when we do it in public, when we discipline them in front of lots of people, it hurts them. Number four, not keeping promises. We say things that we never follow through with, both as dads and moms. Uh, But you know this song, remember the Cats in the Cradle, that song? Go listen to that sometime. And it just talks about the generations of a dad who doesn't keep promises, and it just keeps that pattern, can keep going in dads indefinitely. Number five, Favoring one child over another. Isaac, remember Isaac and Rebecca? Isaac favored Esau. Rebecca favored Jacob. Just read the story and look, how did he impact their family? And I go, profoundly. Number six, well-meaning overprotection. When we overprotect, See, parents oftentimes smother their children and, and restrict what they can do or can't do, and it's just about minutia details all the time. And we never trust them to bring to do things on their own. And consequently, we, they, we question their judgment, whether we can trust them. And it creates a barrier. The result is it creates a barrier in relationship. And do children need guidance and structure? The answer is yes. But the illustration, again, is in terms of those boundaries and and overprotecting, sometimes it's like holding a bar of wet soap. If the structures and overprotection is so strong, we squeeze down on that, and what happens? It squirts right out of our hand, and our children just walk away from us as well. So what is appropriate? can't get into that, but just read, ponder, and you go, what is appropriate structures at the specific ages. Number seven, pushing achievement beyond what is reasonable. 
a child can be so pressured to achieve. And we can push them to reject even a faith. Let me give you a quote, kind of a harsh one that I came across. It says this, Fathers who fantasize their own achievements through the athletic skills of their sons or mothers, who fantasize a glamorous career through the lives of their daughters, prostitute their responsibility as parents. And are we, re- are we pushing our kids toward academics and toward sports, somehow claiming that's more important than a relationship with Jesus? And I go, you know, how many bumper stickers do, you, do we see out there? I'm the proud parent of a C student. We just you don't see that. And, and yet, our, our kids can grow up to be stars in sports and academics and get scholarships. And, and folks, if they don't embrace and believe Jesus, something's left out. Something's missing. And those kids end up marrying kids who don't care about Jesus. See, knowing Jesus, embracing Jesus, knowing the truth, believing in Jesus is the most important thing. It's not an A. It's not a scholarship. It's got to be about Jesus as the most important thing. Number eight, parents failing to sacrifice for their children and making them feel unwanted. A good family soil helps them feel valued and wanted. And, and, and if they don't, if we don't do that, kids stuff it. They retreat relationally. And, and you know what? The resentment often doesn't come through in the teenage years. It comes through later on when they're grown adults. I, I, I know some in my family. Some of my siblings who are resent, were resentful toward mom and dad because of some of the, those issues of, of failing to sacrifice. Number nine, failing to let children grow up at a normal pace. Do you realize that children act like children? And they're supposed to do that? Really? That's why they're called children. Okay? If they if they wanted to act as adults all the time when they were, you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, even thirteen, fourteen, whatever, they're not adults yet. And at times parents get so stressed out on on getting their children to act just the right way that they we don't let them grow up and we don't let them be children. Number ten, hard one using love as a tool of reward or punishment. It's giving love and giving relationship only when they're doing well. And then we withdraw relationship and we ignore them when they're somehow not doing so well or rebelling or whatever else. See, the call on us is to love them whether they're doing well or whether they're not doing well and to help them make them feel loved as a, as a child. And, and on this one, a child knows it intuitively. I'm convinced of that. And they maybe can't even express it when they're younger. They will when they're older. 
The last one, number 11, physical and verbal abuse. And in our culture, this has grown. You read the stories and the court cases that are out there and the incredible abuse that's taken place. And here the challenge is that, we, that at times we, we look at discipline and spankings and all of those pieces that go with discipline and, and the goal is about power and force and who's really in control. And folks, that's, that's not what God does for us. God disciplines us because he loves us. And abuse can take place when it's just about power and control. Now the question, some of this and much of this applies to younger parents. What about us that have older children? Grandkids. Maybe don't have kids. But here's what I would say. What's the environment that as grandparents we're wanting to create with our children, with our grandchildren? Do we still want to have dialogue and spiritual things with our adult children? Or do we just want to ignore them and never have discussions on spiritual things? I go, no. The call in discipleship is for us that are older to be looking out for the younger and for those that are raising young kids and teenagers, the call is for us to come alongside of somebody and help them, encourage them, pray for them to give wisdom, to, to tell of our failures, where we blew it and wish we were where we wished we could go and things that we could change. Because they need to hear that. We need to admit it. Sometimes, for us parents, we need to come back and say, what does it mean to go to our children and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I, I wish we could have done it different. I, I came across, though, to end here, Something that a dad, I don't know the name, who it was. It was an illustration, and, and, and a dad wrote this. And, and I think to end, this kind of nails it. says this, My family's all grown, and the kids are all gone. But if I had to do it over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. And I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. And I would listen more, even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my weaknesses, never pretending perfection. Then he goes on to say, I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words and thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my children and with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use it to direct them to God. And I go, Amen. For some of us that are older, I think we could resonate with that as to what he wrote. See, God wants to use us, and he wants to have families, grandparents, where the soil is black dirt. And we can't guarantee 
our children are going to believe. We can provide the soil. And, and if you're a teenager here, that frankly, you can't blame your parent either because you're going to be held accountable one day for it. But we can work at creating families that have a rich black soil where the Holy Spirit can work in our children's lives. Let's stand and pray. Father, would you help us? Would you convict us? Would you maybe discipline us to draw us to a place where we would um, be willing to create a soil where the Holy Spirit can work, where, the, where you can work in the hearts of our children? whether it be grown children, whether it be young children, whether it's grandchildren, Father, would you help us? Give us the desire to, to create a soil that, that loves profoundly, that gives grace, that gives hope, that, that gives understanding, that gives meaning, that points those young ones and those even are a bit older to Jesus. So we, we thank you again for even this text, this hard text as it talks about not provoking to anger, but set a culture of nourishment and of discipline. So Father, we give you this day and we acknowledge again that you're the one that we need in, in our lives. May we surrender to you fully and we give it to you, these things we pray in your name. Amen. If you don't know somebody around you today, uh, introduce yourself, say hi to them, greet them. Have a good week, hoping to see you here next Sunday at Easter. Invite somebody back here the next, this, next weekend.